0: This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this,
1: visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father in heaven, thank you for this chance to meet together again. Thank you for the opportunity to study and to reflect on your word and the principles that are established in your word for the caring of people. I pray that you will bless our time in this last session together and that you will help things to uh, be clear in our minds of the principles of how we should care for people and also lead them to an understanding of, of truth and to apply that, uh, those principles in their lives to our churches who struggle with knowing how to work through difficult problems. And that you will guide what we do now. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, obviously, I'm not going to do a presentation, Elder Gallimore. Like I said, for those of you who are coming in, he'll be here in a moment. I don't want to scare anybody seeing me up here and they saying, what's going on? Um, but uh, I don't know if you have any questions, or want to dialogue any on training center churches, for example, or anything else. I'm happy to work with you on it. So. What do you do if you have a good team of leaders, very spiritual, very committed, but Wow. All right. You all have the answer to that question, right? Um, just for the sake of the tape here and making sure that gets recorded, you want to know, what do you do if you've got a good team, a leader team, but they don't want to show up on time? You know, there seems to be something about society today in relationship to time. We don't, we've, we don't seem to take it as seriously as we did. There's some cultures where if you show up an hour later, that's normal. You know, I've never quite figured out how that works because what do you do for the hour until that particular person shows up? Um, I know that in, in my life, I, there are times when I've struggled a little bit with time. I, I remember when I got to Andrews University and the uh, department I was working for, I was in the seminary, but I, I worked for the carpenter shop. And the first, time, first day of my, uh, my assignment, I got there, and I think I was one or two minutes late. And the head of the department caught me and took me to his office and explained to me that that would be the last time that I showed up late. I, you know what? Somehow I got the message, <laughs> you know? Amen. And you can't do that with volunteers. I mean, there's no question about it. But sometimes we do have to help our, our leadership team, especially realize that the principle of uh, being on time sets an example for other people, and it really is important because it affects the way you're able to do what you're trying to accomplish. I don't know. Anybody else got a better solution for that? I, it's a real tough one, but when you're trying to build a team, you've got to be able to do it in the right way. Sure. a little bit and explain. It's a time to use the jawbone a little bit and explain to people. Uh, other people's time is valuable, and uh, they need to get together or get there on time. I, I think that's really yeah. I think that's a good it's a is a good principle because ultimately, if I'm a leader and I don't show up, but everybody else does, you know, everybody gets in a crisis where you get a flat tire or you know an accident come, happens on the way and you're caught in traffic and all that kind of thing. But if if that's a regular habit, that means you're stealing time from the people that are there, and that really is a biblical principle. So, yeah, it's it's good. Pardon me. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's nothing to be done, and there's no leadership taking place, and that's that's an important principle. Other questions? Yes. I appreciate what Elder Gallimore said with respect to the Adventist um, structure being uh, committee-oriented as opposed to individual-oriented how do we balance, this kind of even dovetails into this prior question, how do we dovetail the incredible number of committees that we have in terms, and particularly when you have a, a more limited number of people that are, are involved in church leadership, swamping them with meetings, so it's meeting after meeting after meeting, so we can get the most out of people, they can
2: get the most out of their time.
1: This is something that, is really beginning to worry me personally. Um, speaking on a conference level, I've noticed that... I don't know exactly what the law is, but there's got to be a law out there somewhere. It's something like gas expands to fill the space. The longer that you're in a place, either as a leader, a pastor, um, or, or in your church or whatever... It seems like the longer you're there, the more things begin to just grow and grow and grow. And that is uh, the former ministerial secretary of Michigan. His name is Lauren Nelson. He's now our HR director. Uh, and he, he said that when he first came to the Michigan conference office, one of the things that they did is they looked at all the committees and figured all the ones they could get rid of. I think it's time in our conference to do it again. <laughs> because all of a sudden, these, these committees seem to be expanding to fill the space, which there isn't much of anymore. I don't know if you ever read Tyranny, Tyranny of the Urgent, but to me, that's kind of the way we've, we've, what we've become. We've become individuals that are absolutely inundated with things that seem to be urgent. And we can never get to the things that are really important. And I I really do think that one of the things we can do is, is to take a look at our committees and ask ourselves, are these fulfilling the work that God has given us to do? And if they honestly have not, then it's time to either change them or remove them so that there is a good functioning process. It's also possible for us to This is one of the reasons I think the training center churches are so critical because in our churches we have become focused on that person who carries the title pastor and nothing counts unless the pastor's there. I don't care what committee it is or what program it is or the person who's in the hospital or any of those kinds of things, it's the same old thing. The pastor's not here, our time was wasted. And I believe that our churches need to organize in such a way that the work can be done without being person-dependent. The person we need to be dependent upon is Jesus, and he can be everywhere. Well, you understand theology with that. But the Spirit of God has promised to be there for us. And I think we need to take a look at those committees and say, okay, wait a minute, we're all having to come to every committee. Why? Let's make sure that our committee time is spent in the best possible way. Now, another issue on the same thing is that people are so busy with life. And I remember one of my church members coming to me and saying, you know, I just don't have time to do that. I said, so what are you doing? And he told me what he was doing. He was bowling on Sunday night. He was bowling on Monday night. He was bowling on Tuesday night. He was bowling on Wednesday night. I think he was bowling on Thursday night. And he didn't have any more time. Now, not everybody's doing that. We have people, uh, you know, who are business people and, and having to travel and, and all of that, uh, and that can be really difficult. But many times it's a matter of what we decide is priority and how we're going to function with those priorities, and we have to make some decisions. And I talked to that, talked to that individual and, and gave him an opportunity to be involved in a ministry and, and he got excited, he and his wife got so excited about the ministry, he eventually retired and traveled all over the country doing it. I don't know what happened to bowling, okay, because suddenly he realized what was important in life. And I think with committees, we need to do the same kind of thing. So, well, Elder Gallimore, we have been uh, kind of wrestling with a couple of things here. Maybe I'll give you the mic and set up your computer for you. We just answered a question and a couple of questions, and so we're going to do that. We solved all the world's problems while you were gone, so you don't have to worry about any of those. I'm so grateful.
2: <laughs> Hello, everybody. I uh, was in my room and thought I was in good shape, and I looked over the clock and it said 3 o'clock. I was about to fall over. <laughs> Ever have that happen to you? <laughs> so thank you, Ross. What's that? Yeah. Well, there's an old saying, you know, you, you can keep them. You, you can preach as long as you can hold them, you know, talk. <laughs> so have you had, uh, you've had prayer then, I'm assuming? Yeah. Uh, let's plunge into the nominating committee. At our conference office, about nominating committee time, uh, everybody uh, starts kind of getting on the alert because it's, it's invariably areas where many churches just function really, really well. But it is areas where uh, uh, difficulties come up and challenges come. Um, It's just inside that thing there. And I wanted to uh, take you to uh, a couple of quotes here. I can get that up. Uh, It should be in that thing as well. Uh. Last time we got through one slide, so... I said I was going to get the nominating committee. I just looked at this and said, oh, my, I got several other things. But I think I've covered most of those slides. So I want to go right on over to um, this. All right. It's coming out of Church Manual, page 68. It says, choosing quality officers is important for the prosperity of the church, which should exercise greatest care in calling men and women into positions of sacred responsibility. So the nominating committee process is very important. It's not something to be taken lightly. And um, it, uh, we're giving a little bit more information. This is 4T17 uh, in Church Manual, page 69. The Thessalonian believers were greatly annoyed by some men coming among them with fanatical ideas and doctrines. Some were disorderly, working not at all, but busybodies. The church had been properly organized and the officers had been appointed to act as ministers and deacons. But there were some self-willed impetuous who refused to be subordinate to those who held positions of authority in the church. Now, subordinate doesn't mean that they're trying to take over somebody's conscience, but it's subordinate in the sense that there's a due process within the church. There is a system of order in the church. Um, I was at a Michigan conference camp meeting, and we had – these were not uh, Seventh-day Adventists, but somehow they had gotten kind of cued on to our camp meeting – And they showed up in one of our auxiliary rooms in the overflow room. And they basically took it over. I mean, there are probably two or 300 people in there in this overflow room. And um, so we have campus uh, pastors who are acting as campus security. And eventually they called me, and so I showed up. And with some of these people, they don't understand anything except um, steel. They... They are they're they're disrupting. I don't mind if they have their views, but it was uh, so. I, I said to them, I said, you know, and I, and I said it kindly, but but clearly, I said this this is private property. We're protected under the law to be able to have a peaceable assembly and religious gathering without that being interrupted. So we'd please like to ask you to cease and desist. Oh no, they wanted to argue. They want and finally. You, you can't do it. They brought their wives, their children, uh, the whole bit. I mean, it, they had the whole crowd there. Finally, I looked at them, and you, you may not agree with this, but I think it was the right thing. I, I don't apologize for it. I finally looked at the leader who kept trying to. I says, look, we're not arguing, and we're not debating. And I've told you once, now, I want you to leave. Well, they weren't going to do that. I says, look, I'm going to tell you this. I want you to turn right around, at it, just like this. I want you to turn right around. And I want you to march right back out to the road because if you don't, we're calling the police. Now, you hate to do that, but you have to have order within the congregation. Now, that's an extreme thing, and hopefully you don't have that. But if you have somebody that's constantly interrupting, constantly showing up on your foyer on Sabbath morning, constantly messing around with your visitors and those kind of people coming in, you've got to put your foot down. Um, I mean, there's a place for, I didn't say uncontrolled anger, but there's a place for righteous indignation. If I've got people that, that are coming to church the first time, not maybe first time, but maybe they're not baptized, and I've got people that are insisting on handing out stuff in the foyer on Sabbath morning, we're going to have, we're going to have a clash at some point. That's why the Churches were properly organized in Paul's day. They had officers appointed over them, uh, elders and pastors, etc., And they are there to keep charge. Don't, don't succumb to this thing. Now, we're not getting into fights. We're not getting into that. We have order in this country. You have protection of the law to meet. But you may have to call the police sometime. Hopefully, you don't have to. Hopefully, you can work it through, try to get them into another room, try to talk to them. Sometimes those disorderly uh, people are within your own congregation, and they can really cause you some real problems. And you're going to have to move those folks through some disciplinary process. Otherwise, you can't protect your foyer on Sabbath morning from that kind of of behavior. So, uh, it's important that we have officers, that we have leaders, that they know the responsibilities, and can do. We we in one church I was pastoring we got a tip-off from somebody that there was a predatory person who was just showing up to prey on our young girls. And um, so the first time we saw him, he showed up, sure enough, right down to our teenage uh, area. And uh, this was some years ago. So I called the elder over and I said, as soon as uh, church is over, we'll take this fellow out and visit with him. So as soon as the church was over, we called him over and said, will not come over and sit down in our car here and talk to you? So we, we looked at him and he says, look, we, we know about you. And we noticed the first thing you did is you ran it right for our teenagers. And we want to tell you that you're always free to worship here, but we don't want to catch you around our young people. You just, you got to do that kind of thing. And you need people who ha- are duly invested with authority to do it. I mean our 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 people at camp meeting they had authority but when I finally showed up I was kind of the you know they knew they'd run to the end of the line and, and about the next thing was going to happen was, was going to happen cuz I'm in it and they knew I'm in it so it, you have to have organization you have to have order and you cannot succumb to this thing that, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings, so we just let them carry on and mess up and bring chaos into the church. You cannot tolerate that kind of thing. And it's not right, it's not orderly, it's not good. So and usually you try to do it without getting into a confrontation. By the way, that fellow that we took out in the car and talked to, we never saw him again. And uh, he just didn't want to worship with us anymore. <laughs> People have to know you have, you have your, their number you know, and some people that have, and I'm not, I'm not into red letters over people in our society today. You know, somebody makes a mistake, and we, we want to put a red letter on the back. The rest of, the, I'm not into that, but I am into protecting kids, and um, I did have uh, in one place somebody had gotten out who had, had that that kind of a problem, and I happened to see them standing in the doorway, talking a long time with. Uh, uh, a kid so we pulled him aside and said look you know what you've been through you should not be doing that uh, it's all right to say hi and smile that kind of thing but we don't want prolonged contact and it's going to get you back in trouble so we're trying not only to protect the kids we're trying to protect you and you have to remind people if they have that kind of temptation you don't put an alcoholic in a in a bar so you don't put people who have those kind of temptations in those kinds of environments. You don't let them go there. So um, at any rate, that's why you have to have officers and why your nominating committee process is important. Your elders do have authority in that church, and they should have authority in that church. That's not like, you know, they're not going around. You know, some people get authority, and, you know, it's like wearing a gun, you know, on, on, in their holster, and they go around. They got authority, you know, and say, See what I got? Kind of a thing. Um, so you, you never want to be that way. Uh, we're not into being authoritarian, but we do want God's work to run in a smooth, in a smooth way. Um, anyway, they claim uh, uh, not only the right of private judgment, but that of publicly urging their views upon the church. In view of this, and there, there's processes. People have a different view, but when you get into publicly insisting you've got to take over the church, in view of this... Paul called the attention of the Thessalonians to the respect and deference due to those who've been chosen to occupy positions of authority in the church. And uh, going on, that's Acts of Apostles 261-262. Those who hold responsible positions in the church may have faults in common with other people. That's the truth. And may err in their decisions. We don't make decisions, the best decisions, every time. But notwithstanding this, the church of Christ on earth has given them an authority that cannot be lightly esteemed. That's uh, Church Manual 69, 4 Let's talk about the work of the elder for just a second. And uh, the authority and the work of the elders are confined to the church in which their election has been made. Now, this is going to be interesting in just a moment, and uh, I'll show you why. It's not permissible for a conference committee by vote to confer on an elder the status that is granted to an ordained pastor to serve other churches as elder. If that need exists, the conference committee may recommend, this is the part that's interesting, to the church needing, it's a specific church, needing an elder, that it invite and elect an elder of a nearby church to serve. So what that means is that you could actually, an elder could serve in two churches where he's needed, but he's got to be elected. Even though his membership may be in one place, if there's a special need, he can serve in the other church as an elder. Um, so thus by election, one individual may, when necessary, serve more than one church. Such an arrangement should be made only in council with the conference committee. So it's not something he's doing on his own. The local churches are doing on their own. Authority to elect elders is inherent in the local church and not in the conference committee conference committee conference officers and and the church manual draws a line here i do not have the right and shouldn't or the authority to walk into a church and demand that they elect different elders i do not have that authority that neither does the conference executive committee so we can when you're when you're an ordained not ordained when you're a local church that local church elects its own officers now we might Give some counsel. We might say you might need to consider some things, but we cannot just go in there and insist on on uh, a change in that local church. That local church has to make those changes. Okay,
0: Vaughn. Uh, uh, I used to live in Montana. Um, one of the churches there had—I uh, don't know exactly what happened. I just talked to the to the the Montana Conference president while he was on his way to the church to take care of it, but they had kind of. Uh, stacked the deck somewhat mm-hmm. uh, with some folks who uh had ideas that I guess were outside of some of of what we're talking about here and and they actually did come in and and told them that they would that they couldn't elect the people they were electing and they couldn't go the route they were going even though they were uh you know uh, I mean they they were they were all elected the the people who they stacked in the nominating committee they were put in there not not of their own will but they were put in there by the rest of the congregation it's just that what they had in mind had got to the 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 conference the the local conference there and and they came in and and made sure and they were they were likely they were correct i'm sure i don't know the whole story but nevertheless there's obviously there's some provision for that
2: Well, I think probably, and I I don't know that particular situation, so but there could, yeah, and that's good. You you could have the situation where you have a local church that's being taken over by elements that really don't support the 28 fundamental beliefs. They don't support the uh, church manual. You could have that kind of a thing. In that case, I think you would go in and say, look, to the congregation or to the people that are responsible, say, look, you, you need their qualifications for leadership, and here are the qualifications and you need to apply those qualifications so yeah, they could go in and shepherd that kind of thing, I think all right um, let's uh, let's go to the next slide. Here are the elections. who should be members of the nominating committee now. I told you earlier that people get confused in the Adventist church because, oh, you know, we've got the organizing committee, and the organizing committee elects the nominating committee, and then the nominating committee uh, has to elect officers, and people kind of get confused, particularly with that organizing committee. Now, let me just see for a question and answer. Some of you may actually have the answer. Why do you think the Seventh-day Adventist church doesn't elect a nominating committee directly from the floor? okay or even with secret but they don't let uh, Bruce Maybe a degree, of separation. degree of separation okay yes Bear well, whatever you do from the floor can be prearranged
1: and by a small group and it's very difficult to uh, to derail that from up front on a Sabbath morning
2: okay alright you're, you're getting closer um Let's let's look at this nominating committee for a second. Qualification: only members in regular standing should be chosen to serve on the nominating committee. Next, notice the next part. They should be persons of good judgment who have the welfare and the prosperity of the church at heart. Now tell me why you don't think we elect them directly from the or by secret ballot or otherwise.
1: There's going to be a need to qualify people. Sometimes, in our church, for example, you need to be a tithe payer to the conference. And some of that is, there's a confidentiality that you don't want to have going throughout the congregation.
2: Our spiritual forefathers and mothers, when they put this organization together, they knew what they were doing. And... uh, and, and you're, you're right on target, but you take this last part. They should be persons of good judgment who have welfare and the prosperity of the church. If you just have a popular election directly from the floor, you could actually elect people that may not be in regular standing. You might elect people that have things going on in their lives that That The rest of the congregation, they might be just the nicest person in the world and and really sanguine, but they really have no business sitting on a nominating committee. Nominating committees should be people that, just like this says, that are people of good judgment and have the welfare and the prosperity of the church. The organizing committee gives you a chance to sort through that and then elect people in good standing for the nominating committee. So that's why you have the organizing committee. So most people don't understand that. If they understood it, I think they'd be more supportive of it. But don't, don't lay aside that organizing committee. That organizing committee is there to make sure that thoughtful um, thinking can go into who's going to sit on that nominating committee. Yes?
1: How do they decide who's on the organizing committee?
2: Well, that, that does get elected directly from the floor. But once that's elected from the floor, the pastor comes in, and probably you'll have an elder or two, and they will sit down, and they'll start talking about the kinds of people that you've got to have on the nominating committee. And you're going to say, now, folk, we need to have people that meet these kind of qualifications. And we want to make sure that we've got those kind of people with those kind of qualifications. They're not going to sit there and dictate who will be on the nominating committee, but they're going to insist on those kind of qualifications.
1: The process I used as a pastor was, uh, especially in the last church I had, it was a larger church, and we uh, printed out a list of all the people that were members of the church that were eligible to be on the nominating committee in terms of membership. And then gave that out, and people circled it, And that gave us, even though it was, quote, from the floor, it gave us a chance to make sure that the people that were elected were eligible to be on that. So
2: the whole idea behind this is that you have good spiritual leadership on your nominating committee. That's why you have an organizing committee. Okay. Other questions on that? Yes, way back in the back, and I'm going to come back there. Go ahead. Well, they can't. He- they weren't for the tape.
1: Sometimes um, a group of people manage to get themselves all on the nominating committee, who are really not, who really shouldn't be there, and then you have them for the next several years because they elect somebody that's related or anyway people who believe the same way they do. And that's the problem we've had in our church for the last few years. It, it makes it very difficult.
2: Yeah. If, um, usually if you can follow the process, you can avoid that. It can always, not always be avoided. But, again, we need to keep uh, pushing the spiritual qualifications of this. Okay, here's how the process worked. Many of you are familiar with it, but just in case you're not um, The steps of the nominating committee process are, one, the church appoints by vote an organizing committee of one of the two methods listed above. Actually, um, I'm going to list it below here. The organizing committee recommends the names to the church for the nominating committee with a recommendation for secretary. Well, let me back up. I didn't put it up here. Let me tell you what the two methods are for an organizing committee. You have two methods of doing that. You can elect an organizing committee directly from the floor of a business meeting or on a Sabbath morning, or you can say to them, you can elect four people or three people or five people to set with the church board, the presently setting church board, to elect a nominating committee. And I've, had, I've seen that happen twice. If you've got the set problem, she has or the potential of that, then that sometimes can be a good alternative. And you can make a recommendation. Now, the floor doesn't have to accept that, but you can make the recommendation you have the, have the power of the recommendation. Okay, the or- organizing committee recommends names to the church for nominating committee with a recommendation for the secretary. Every effort should be made to ensure fair representation in the comp- uh, composition of the nominating committee. By vote, the church appoints the nominating committee and... The secretary. Who chairs the nominating committee? According to the church manual, the pastor chairs that. That was a change made back, I think in two, it was either 2000 or, or 95. But that was a change that they made. So the local pastor, now he has the option of, of having a designee do it. Or if there's no pastor there, then of course they can elect their own chairperson. Uh, the pastor or district leader as the ex officio member, serves as a chairperson of the nominating committee. Should the pastor or district leader choose not to serve, or if a pastor or district leader has not been appointed by, to the church, the organizing committee shall recommend the name from the proposed nominating committee to serve as a chairperson. Number five, the nominating committee meets to prepare the list of officers that it will present to the church for approval. By vote, the church appoints its officers for the next year or the ensuing year. All right, uh, I'm gonna pause here for just a moment. Any, any questions about the process? How many of you now understand the organizing committee and its reason for existence? Anybody foggy on that? Okay. Um, I think that's the biggest challenge that we have with the nominating committee is understanding the, uh, uh, that, that particular issue. I I can't stress enough that when you get into a nominating committee that we stress spiritual qualifications for office. This is not about prestige. This is not about lords over the congregation. It's really talking about servant leadership. What are servant leaders? Servant leaders own nothing. They're just stewards, and they're trying to do the best for God's work, and uh, we we need to emphasize that in our nominating committee process. Nominating committee discussions are confidential. When the nominating committee used to get seated, I used to have a written piece of paper out that's saying I pledged to be confidential about the discussions of the nominating committee, and I had everybody in the nominating committee sign it. That usually worked pretty good. Usually. But if you don't do something like that, Everybody in church will know everything that was said, and people can't say anything confidential. And it gets by the time it gets back to another person, uh, you know, it's distorted or, you know, Roy Snaman said that about me. How could he do that? And, you know, he may have just been trying to be responsible and say, well, you know, he, he's got some really good qualities here, but over here is an area... You need to think about that if we're going to put him in there that, that I've observed. And maybe somebody else says, yeah, i observed that too. Somebody else may say, well, I haven't seen that, but I saw these other qualities. So that kind of thing happens in a nominating committee, not because people are trying to be power hungry, I hope, by the grace of God, but because you're trying to sort through to get people who can serve. And uh, it's a privilege to serve God's work, but we shouldn't look at it as a prestige or career thing. And, uh, and unfortunately, sometimes people see it that way. Uh, they see it as a career or they see it as a prestige thing. And they turn the church into their own little political world where they are hoping to, uh, to be king of the roost, uh, so to speak. That's always unhealthy anytime that kind of thing happens. Because we all should have the attitude, hey, I'm here to serve. If you need me, fine. If you don't, it's Okay. But uh, I'm here to do whatever God needs me to do. Now, um, Andrew Murray, have you ever read any of Andrew Murray's books? He's um, it's a, it's a wonderful man of God from back uh, many years ago. Uh, not a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, but he said, he, he said something in there that really stuck in my mind. He said, you know, the angels in heaven are just as happy to sweep the streets of the New Jerusalem as they are to be assigned to go to the greatest world or galaxy on a mission. They just want to be in the center of the will of God because they know he loves them and they just want to please him and make him happy. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we all had that attitude in the church and, uh, and not the, the, the political thing? Sometimes this can be turned into something that's political, but hopefully we're trying to do what's best for the church and not... Politics. I also say to people on the nom- particularly in smaller churches where you have this more more likely. Say, look, if your relative is being nominated, that's, I'm going to do this right up front before we get started. If your relative is being nominated for a position, just please don't don't wait till I ask you to leave. Just voluntarily to at, to, to leave, and, unless everybody agrees that they want you to stay. But I said just 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 nobly do that. Uh, up front. So if it's your mama or your daddy or your kid or your, mo- or your sister or your brother or maybe if it's, you know, first or second cousin, maybe that's not as big a deal but you have to kind of weigh what you're into but if it's your relative, just say folks, that's my relatives, that's my first cousin uh, call me back when you're all done and that's a good time to make an exit. And if you do it then none of us have to say anything but that's just the rule we have. You know, when you do this stuff up front and you educate people up front it's wonderful how cooperative people are. They will automatically get, oh yeah, okay, that's my cousin. I'll see you later. Call me back when you're when you're done. And people are usually very, very cooperative in that kind of thing. So you want to keep it above board, and you want to keep it uh, uh, operating in a wise thing. All inquiries or discussions of the nominating committee are confidential. It is a violation of Christian ethics in the spirit of the golden rule for a member of the committee to repeat outside the committee any personal or sensitive information discussed. To offend in this regard is reason for excluding the committee member from future participation in the work of the nominating committee. Should the necessity arise for inquiries to be made outside the committee, the chairperson should make them. That's pretty clear. Uh, It's not always followed. You know, people want to know, well, what happened in the nominating committee? Why wasn't somebody else renominated? What, what did you say? And, and people are just really, and, and you have to meet that with kind but firm and say, you know, that's not ethical for me to share with you. If you say that's not ethical, then that puts them in the position of asking you to do something that's unethical. And usually that will uh, be enough to stop uh, that kind of, uh, behavior. But it is sure to happen. All right. What if there are objections? What if, the, what, if, what if you, you know, we read the nominating committee report how many times? At least twice. Read it the first time. Why do we read it the first time? Because a nominating committee doesn't have the power to elect anybody. It only has the power to recommend. So the body has a right to know who they're recommending, and the body has a right and a responsibility that if they know something that the nominating committee may not know, they have a responsibility to share that with the nominating committee. So usually the wise thing to do is to say, we're having the first reading this week. On Wednesday night, the nominating committee will be meeting at such and such a time, We'll be here. If any of you have any questions about this report or the people on this report, would you please come and talk to us? That way you save yourself from getting these motions where you have to send it back to the report because you automatically set up an opportunity for people to function in that. And usually that'll solve most of your problems. Sometimes people come up with things that you didn't know about. In that case... You have to make sure that it's legitimate. If somebody comes and says, did you know that so-and-so is smoking? Well, no, we didn't know that. Well, let us verify that and uh, so forth. So thank you for the information. You go to so-and-so and said, you know, we've elected you to be such and such, but as you know, it's a high standard in our church that we don't smoke or drink. That wouldn't be any kind of a problem in your life, would it? Well, yeah, it, it, it is. I, I've got a problem. And then, of course, you're ministering to them. And then at some point after you minister to them a bit, then you say, well, now, what should we do with this nomination? What do you think is the best thing to do? Well, they said, well, I I think I probably ought to withdraw my name. So now they've solved your problem without you having to solve it. So that when you replace that name and then if anybody says anything, you can say, well, they, they withdrew their name. And then, then you're, you're ha- you don't have to go into ex- a lot of explanation. Let's go right over here. You have a question. And uh, let me come this around so that it can get on the...
1: How do, How would you deal with if there was sensitivity, if there was like a big outcry from the church saying, no, we don't want that person teaching Sabbath school or leading Pathfinders or whatever? At that point, do you like call them up and say, I'm sorry, we're withdrawing our nomination, you you can't tell them all the people that have been complaining about it. What's the the procedure on that?
2: Well, for me, it would be very similar to what I just said. Let's just say it's not smoking. Let's just say it's, uh, maybe it's X, Y, and Z, and I don't know what X, Y, and Z might be right now, but let's just say it's legitimate. Let's just say this person has some challenges. You need some diplomacy when you talk to people because you're trying to save people at the same time that you're trying to make a change. But the best thing is to say, look, you know, some have come not because they don't love you. They do love you. But they really wonder that because of X, Y, and Z, if that's best for you to serve or if you wouldn't serve better in a different capacity. And uh, could you talk to me about that? Could we have a discussion about that? Because I want you to know these people that came really care about you. We care about you. We're not here to embarrass you. If you get them working with you and they come around and they say, yeah, I think, I think it might be better. Sometimes I'll say, well, maybe it might be better if you withdrew your own name and that way it would save a, you know, a conflict. They say, yeah, I think I'd like to withdraw my name on that. Okay, I say, oh, fine. But I want to make sure now you know we love you. We care about you. And we've got some other things I want you to do. I'm going to need you. Sometimes I go with other things in my pocket. Say, maybe after the nominating committee, uh, you know, I'd really love to have you help me with X, Y, and Z. Would you be open to doing that? That way, they're sensing that we still value their ministry in the church. Uh, You'd have to think through. I know it's a Chinese proverb of saving people's face. But it's not a bad proverb. If we can do it without, I, I, don't, I won't be dishonest. I won't be, um, uh, but there's a lot of good, legitimate things I can say about most people. Uh, they may have some negative things. They may have some problems. Maybe they've got a problem with gossip. Maybe that's why they don't want them to serve in such and such a place. So we have to talk about this. Did you know you have, a, some of the saints are worried that you're not as confidential. Now let's talk about that. And uh, sometimes you get some personalities you can't do anything in the world with. They'll blow up, get mad, angry, and then they got another problem. And that, then I switched to that. I says, you know, you're very upset right now. Why are you so upset? Talk to me about it. I don't think you want to be angry. You, you're, you're a really nice person. You love the Lord. And you love this message. But you're very angry. Let's talk about why you're angry. Let's forget about all this other stuff. So you get people talking about the real issues that are going on in their life. And usually... The end of that is a good win-win. I always look for win-wins for people and for the church. I don't know if that helps, but some of the process, because I don't know specifically what you're talking about. And if you told me, I'd be at a disadvantage because I'm not there to, to, to pick it up. All right, I got another question in the back, and she is way in the back, so it's going to take me just a second or two to get back there. We use this phone because uh, it's all in the... It's the same thing for the uh, recording,
1: okay um, I was wondering last year at our church we had a great turnaround of um, the nominating committee Before that we had similar people each year um but I was told the basis was that um, they said, and I don't know I didn't I was waiting to see if you would talk about it that no family members of a previous committee could be on the committee again is that is that true is that an
2: that is a um, uh, you're going to ask me if that's in the manual, and I should be able, I'm looking to, uh, it, it may be, but it's a, it's a rule of thumb that's used a lot, and it's a good rule of thumb. So in other words, you keep, that way you don't have the same nominating committee every year. So it's a good rule, and the church board can make that rule. All right? You are, you're totally in the back. All right, what is uh, your, Kanda? Con- um, Kanda, head elder
1: BA chairperson of the nominating committee? Can there be a chairperson? Can the head elder of the church be a chairman of the nominating committee?
2: He can be if the pastor chooses not to serve as the uh, chairman of the nominating committee and the organizing committee elects him to be the chairman. But he's not automatically. All right. Let's uh, I lost my yes. Oh, I've only got five minutes to go. Wow, to end this thing up. Oh, there's something important I wanted to tell you there, and I. Uh, uh, well, let me let me let me finish up with the five. Let's talk about the function of church boards. This is a huge area that we need a a real revolution in North America over. In many places in the world, they operate by the church manual on this. Many church boards in North America, they do everything, they make everything the priority that they shouldn't make the priority. What do you think they usually make the priority uh, to be? The financial statement. So we, gotta spend, we spend a half hour going through the financial statement and uh, so forth. Listen to the church manual on how church boards should function. It's amazing the board should permit no other business to interfere with planning for what? Amen. Wow. What if every church board of every church said, our most important business is to plan for evangelism. Now, evangelism is a big word. It can be public meetings. It can be personal ministries. It can be outreach, literature, whatever you got to go on. This is what they're supposed to be doing. So every time the church board meets, they can hardly wait to get together because they get the reports of how the evangelism is going and they're planning to do more evangelism. And, uh, and you've got enthusiastic church board members that really want to do this. A lot of people just disdain to get on church boards nowadays because they've got to go through, you know, the financial report and we have to argue about why we spent $25 to do X, Y, and Z. And it... It gets pretty pretty uh, boring and sometimes contentious and sometimes people use it, something to maybe get at the pastor or whatever and um, and that kind of a thing. <clears throat> so the board should permit no other business to interfere with planning for evangelism. Should other business be too time-consuming, the board should appoint committees to care for specific areas of church business, such as finance or church building projects. Such committees will then make recommendations to the board. In other words, you can have some people that are good in finance and they can take a look at everything and they can come back to the church board and say, look, we looked at everything. X, Y uh, was uh, a little up. Uh, Z was under. Overall, we're looking good. We're tracking with the budget and... Oh, wonderful, praise God. We still have some money in there for evangelism and such. A, oh, yes, you have some money in there for that. All right, so we know what we got to do to be able to spend that. See, and that's then the church board really moves in on, on moving the mission of the church. The church board was never put there to rule the church. It was there to engage the church in evangelism. Now, certainly it has oversight. And we understand that kind of a thing. But... Uh, that's a whole different ball game than what most people think about. The work of the board, here it is again. Just in case we didn't get it from that one, look at this one. The most important item on the agenda should be planning the evangelism, uh, the evangelization of outreach, missionary territory of the church. In addition, once each quarter, an entire meeting should be devoted to plans for evangelism. The board will study conference recommendations for evangelistic programs and methods and how they can be implemented locally. The pastor and the board will initiate and develop plans for public evangelistic campaigns. I don't think you can read that paragraph and come away thinking oh, we can just do business as usual. Now, with training center churches, this is a big deal for us. Am I right, Pastor Royce? We're, we're, just, we're saying to our churches... Change your modus of operandus with your board meetings. Get the leadership of the church engaged in the mission of the church. See if it doesn't turn your church around. If every time and if you know if we're not passionate about evangelism, if we're not as passionate about this as the church manual, we have to check ourselves and say, Lord, what's wrong with my heart? Because we we need to be passionate about reaching the lost. And that's what the churches exist for. So anyway, I guess I'm just about out. That part, I really, that's a good place to kind of end. I really wanted to get that done. I got a lot of other stuff here on the tithe and how the tithe is used and all those kinds of things. I could get into that. I will tell you that I think, by and large, Adventists should be proud of their financial system. I think your tithe is being used well. We're the only church that I know of that tracks tithes separately does that mean that we could, have, could use some change in some policies and so forth here and there? I'm not saying we couldn't, but I think by and large, you can be pretty happy about the way your tithe is done. But let me come back to that church board. I, that's a great note to end on. I hope that you've been inspired, by the way, to go back and read your church manual. I hope that you'll get your church board to read your church manual. I hope that maybe you lay aside some money and invest in a church manual copy for every board member and, and say, let's take this serious. That's why overseas divisions are growing and why we have stagnated in the Western world because we haven't taken these basic principles serious. And... Um, we began to catch on that, that a few years ago. We had a young man from Africa, I'll just kind of close with this, and he, his name was um, Sabanda. What was his first name? Reginald Sabanda, means lion. He had been he had run his own business about 18 years old, 19. He was a little older when he got to us. Uh, was running his own brick-making business. And the numbers he quoted me would make any businessman in North America pretty happy. I mean, small business person. Uh, He was doing well. But he, he was converted and he was baptized, and he was spending his weekends or his nights spending his own money holding evangelistic meetings. He was out winning souls. And he was winning so many souls that finally the brethren took notice of him. He told me this personally. He says, they came and they asked me to be the janitor at the conference office. And he says, that hurt. Now, these are my words. But he says, I decided to humble myself and do what I was asked to do. So he gave up his business and he went to the conference office and became the janitor. And they would let him hold some evangelistic meetings. Well, they were having a big debate in the conference as to whether to call him to be, do some pastoral work. Finally, they decided they would call him to do some pastoral work. So along the border of Zimbabwe and South Africa is a stretch of about, I think it's 180 miles across, if my memory serves me right. In this place, there had been 10 churches, I think it was 10 churches, with 280 members that had had no growth for decades. And they said to him, we're pointing you, the pastor, go down there and see what the Lord will do. He doesn't have a car, so he gets public transportation, or somehow gets himself down there, and he begins to go to work. Well, he's, he starts praying at two o'clock in the morning, and he prays until six o'clock in the morning. And he has a prayer list. He told me, I've had very few prayers unanswered. That's interesting. One of the first things that he did, Pastor Royce will like this, is he went to his elders and said, I need to turn these churches into training center churches. Well, he didn't quite use that terminology, but it was the same thing. Because he had the church manual. And he says, now, if we're going to be elders, we need to follow the church manual. No, they said, we've done it this way for years and we're going to continue to do it. And so then he went to the, to the congregations and he says, I can't work with these elders because they won't follow the church manual." Emmanuel. So the congregations put the church elders out and elected him new elders. In three years, he had 180 churches. 23,000 members. And the Holy Spirit was working miracles like you would believe. This was not a slip and dip deal. I mean, if you heard his stories, it just amazes you. He went in, he had a bunch of people he needed to baptize, and he had them from both ends, and the trains were not running. If you knew anything about the Zimbabwe economy, it was just totally busted. So the trains weren't running, maybe once in a while spasmodically. And he walked into the guy that ran the trains, and he says, on such and such a date, I need the trains to run from this end to back to this place where they had a little camp, where they were going to camp out and baptize. And the, the man who oversaw it said, I've been expecting you. He said, you have? I've never met you. He says, yeah, but I know about you. He said, the trains will run. He says, well, I also need them to run back to take them back. He said, fine, the trains will run. The trains ran. Brought his baptismal candidates. I don't know how many baptized that time. And then he took them all home. He, he walked into, uh, he, he was doing work in a hospital. And, uh, and the person that was in charge of the hospital was very, um, had a lot of animosity toward the Adventists and was doing everything to stop it and was just giving a hard time. And, and they couldn't make progress. They, they had physicians they were dealing with and nurses they had their Bible studies and this person just put a stop to all of it and all of a sudden that person died. And the new person that came in was a Seventh-day Adventist. It, it was just time after time, miracle after miracle that God would do um, I know some people think, well, I can just go there and baptize 23,000. No, you couldn't do that unless God was really, really working with you in that kind of a situation. Um, the Lord wants us to be about his business, but we need to do it God's way, and we ought to have unity among us, and we ought to use that church manual to, as the basis of how we have our modus operandi in our churches. So I hope you're inspired to go home and read that, encourage your... Of fellow uh, members, to take that thing serious, and let's start using it as the basis to move God's work. Mm-hmm. Well, you've been a wonderful class. Thank you for uh, being here, and uh, if uh, we can be of any help, let us know, but I think it's time for the benediction, and I'm going to ask again, Pastor Snayman if you'll have the benediction.
1: Let's stand together. Father, you've given us wonderful tools. You've given us uh, a love for souls that comes from the Spirit of God and tools that help us to pull everything together and to utilize those uh, resources for the advancement of your work. One of those tools is the church manual. We are grateful that it is built on the foundation of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And we pray that you will help us to take it seriously to recognize the benefit that all the work and prayer that has gone into this um, can so greatly benefit your work. As we go, we pray that we'll go with courage in our hearts, the peace of Jesus, and determination to finish your work. In his name we pray. Amen.
2: This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church,
1: seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered
0: Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.